the reading this morning is from Judges, and it's not exactly as it's been printed uh, here. So we'll read from Judges chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, then verses 21 to 25, and we'll finish with chapter 21 and verse 25, which is the last and final verse in Judges. Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubal's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he's related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. And the final verse, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now I'd like to pray for for Jackson. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful to have this servant of yours, Jackson, here with us for these weeks. We thank you for the words that you have given him and he faithfully gives to us. Father of anointing on these words today, Father. We thank you for all that he gives us here, for what he brings here with him, and his wife Donna too, what she brings to her. So Father, now let us open our hearts and our minds, our ears to hear your word, as given through Heavenly Father, your servant Jackson. We ask a protection and a covering over him and all his family in the days to come and on the journeys that they will take. 
and all the days of his life. Amen. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever you use, just send me the bill. There we go. Why don't you turn with me to Judges 9 if you haven't already. I tell you, in any community of faith, you've always got those folks that are just the saints. You know what I mean? They're just, they have walked faithfully for many years, and Nancy is one of those for us. You know, she, you are with someone we look forward to every summer to see and to be around. And you, just, you know, I want you to know how much you are loved and appreciated by many of us here. And so thank you. As Donna said, we look forward to moving here next year. So, you know, at the end of August, uh, we will no longer be leaving, but you're stuck with us come next spring. You know, uh, we will be here on a regular basis. It's refreshing for me. It's been a hard couple of years. <laughs> if I could just say it. it's been a couple of hard couple of years. And when we come in the summer, it, it, uh, you refresh us. You know, you fill up our cup. And we're able to go back and dig back into what God has called us to do. So just thank you. Thank you for uh, who you are and your investment in us and our friendships that have been developing. And it's always good to see various friends that we've gotten to know. ML, just one of my favorite people in the world. So I just, I will go to any meal she cooks anywhere, you know. (laughs) You might remember uh, a couple years ago that... There are 12 guys, 12 uh, young men between the ages of 11 and 16 and a 27-year-old assistant coach who got lost in some caves in Thailand. It was after a game, and they were riding bikes, and, and they begged the coach, they prompted the coach, they pushed the coach to go spelunking. Spelunking is discovering caves, going into cave systems and with a flashlight. And it's, and it's scary and it's fun. I've done it and it's amazing and it's dirty and there's bats. I mean, can you imagine a bunch of guys? This would just be awesome. And they went in two and a half miles. What they did not know, that a severe storm poured down while they were inside and began to fill up the route in which they were to leave. And then they couldn't leave. They couldn't find a way out. And they talked about the sense of darkness, the sense of desperation that they felt. They only had some flashlights. They had some snacks. Those were eaten up within a couple of days. They drank water that dripped off the roof. And they wondered, did anybody know where they were? That sense of complete hopelessness, will anybody come looking for us? And if they come looking for us, will they be able to find us in this very complex cave system in the side of a mountain in Thailand? You just think for a moment, that sense of complete fear and desperation and wondering, does anybody know and does anybody care? Is anybody coming? Many of us in our spiritual journey stand in the exact same place. We wonder. We live in this area of darkness and confusion and struggle, and we wonder, does anybody care? Does anyone know? We even feel like at times God has just turned his back on us, and we stand in this place of darkness, and we ask, will we be found? Will anyone come looking? Let me pray. 
Father God, we invite you into this space. We know you're here because you're everywhere all the time. But Father, we would ask for you to do what only you are able to do, and that is to transform our lives, to engage with us, to reveal Jesus to us, to convict us and encourage us. Father, I pray whatever I would say that is not of you, may it just quickly be forgotten, for I will only tend to confuse. But it's when I say your words after you, we can claim the promise in Isaiah 55 that your words never come back to you without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. And frankly, God, we trust that again right here in this moment. And may we be, as James says, not merely hearers of your word, nodding our head, feeling convicted or encouraged, but doing nothing about it. But may we be doers of your word. May we put it into practice in our relationship with you and our relationship with each other. Now, with our heads bowed, I want to ask you just to pray this simple prayer this morning. Father God, show me how to follow the good king. In Jesus' name, amen. There are so many TV shows and books and movies all about good kings, bad kings, good empire, bad empire. Let me show you a picture we'll put up here on the screen. The Black Panther, the Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars. I mean, they're all about good and evil, aren't they? Good empire, bad empire, good king, bad king, whatever it might be. There's something within us that knows that there is a war that takes place between good and evil. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it seems like intuitively it's been stamped into our DNA. We know by the creator that there are two kingdoms out there. Whether we recognize who the true king is or not, we intuitively know that there's something going on. And so what we want to talk about for a few minutes this morning is we want to talk about there is a good king that has been promised and realized as well as there is an evil king present and defeated. There is a good king promised and realized and an evil king present and defeated. Now Jesus spoke to this in John 10.10, didn't he? We'll put it up here on the screen. The thief, the bad king, comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I, the good king, Jesus, came that they might have life and have it to the full. And we're going to see that in this passage. Because maybe if you're like me, you read the passage and you go, Okay, God, why did you include this? We're going to look at Judges 9. We're going to back up just a little bit. And next week, Dindy's going to talk about Gideon. Gideon had 70 sons. And then he had one son by a concubine in another city. Gideon dies, but as Gideon dies, he says to them, none of my sons are going to rule over you. God needs to rule over you. Gideon was an imperfect hero, as you'll hear next week. But in Judges 8.33, it says, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. And let me show you and remind you, we looked at Baal two weeks ago. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Gideon, Jerubbaal, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Israel once again goes off the tracks. Once again, that cycle that we talked about and we've seen several times, this, this cycle where they, uh, they repent and God restores and then they rebel and they go through this thing over and over and over and over again. Here we are once again in their rebellion against God. 
Now let's look at chapter 9, and you do have this printed. Sorry, we couldn't print this whole thing. There's some 50-something verses that had taken a small book to get this chapter. Abimelech, son of Jerubbabel, Gideon, which means Gideon contends with Baal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the cities of Shechem, which is better for you, to have 70 of Gideon's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. You know my mom. You know my uncles. Man, they live among you. And so what they do is they come and say, you know, it is. It is better to have somebody we know, a local boy we watched growing up, and we've all seen him mature and become a man. Yeah, it would be much better to have him be our leader. So Bimelech then is anointed as leader. They give him 70 pieces of silver out of the temple of Baal. This is how far perverted Israel has become, is they now have a temple of Baal where they take the money and they hand it over to him. And he goes and it says he hired some worthless and reckless fellows. Now here's what he does with it. He takes these guys that he has hired and he goes and he finds his brothers. Now part of it is, is that because he was born of a concubine, He didn't feel included as part of the guys. So there was resentment on his part, and he saw this was a chance to pay them back as well. So he killed 70 of his brothers on a stone. Now, you and I just read that quickly. Let me pause and let you know what this probably is. This is probably a ritual killing. He is sacrificing these 70 brothers to Baal. He is able to accomplish two things at the same time. He is able to somewhat distorted worship and kill his brothers off so he will not be challenged. But Jotham, the youngest, is able to escape. Verse 6, it says, Then all the cities of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered outside the great, uh, beside the great tree at, at the pillar of Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And I wish we had time to even talk about the great tree. There's a history of this tree where very significant things happened spiritually for Israel. Now it's perverted once again. And Jotham goes to Mount Gerizim. Let me show you a picture of Mount Gerizim. You read about this several times throughout the Bible. He goes up on this hill right here. And what he does is he calls down to the leaders and he says to the leaders, Hey, 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 leaders, hey, I want to tell you a story. A story is the forest comes and they stop and they they ask the olive tree, Olive tree, would you be our leader? Would you be the one who will rule over us? And the olive tree says, No. Man, I got too much time invested in the oil that anoints the kings and others. And then they go, the trees go to the fig tree, and they say, the fig tree, fig tree, would, would you rule over us? And the fig tree goes, no, I got too much time invested in the fruit, which is sweet and people enjoy. And then they go to the grapevine, and they say, grapevine, would you be the one who comes and rules over us? And the grapevine says, no, I'm too busy producing wine, which brings cheerfulness to people. No, no, why would I want to do that? The parable, obviously, is saying to to Gideon, where they said to Gideon, rule over us. And Gideon goes, no, 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 I'm not going to rule over you. Let God rule over you. So eventually, it goes to the thorn bush. and says to the thorn bush, will you rule over us? And in verse 15 in chapter 9, it says, the thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. How much shade is there really in a thorn bush? 
But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. A prophetic word of what's going to happen. Jotham speaks a prophetic word about this situation. Because neither Abimelech nor the leaders of Shechem acted honorably toward Gideon, as you'll hear about next week. Now, the downfall of Abimelech takes place because God does not let this stuff go unanswered. Not in our time, maybe. Not in my timing. But never does God lose sight of stuff like this. He holds this stuff accountable. After Abimelech, verse 22, had governed Israel for three years, God stirred a strife between the leaders of Shechem and between Abimelech. And so what the leaders of Shechem did is that they began to put guys up on the highway and they began to rob those who were coming into town. Now you might be asking, why would they do that? They're hurting their own commerce. It's because they want to be able to say to the people, Abimelech can't protect you. He's our leader, and he's not stepping in when we have a great need. They're going to harm themselves because of their hatred now from Abimelech. The story goes on as they have a feast. It's during the grape season, and they, have, they harvest the grapes. Again, they are so cold to God, to Yahweh God. It's not even one of the celebrations that he has set apart as they go into the temple of Baal and they go and they bring what they have, their grapes. They've made grape uh, wine and they sit and they drink. And typical of any time you get a bunch of people together, politics comes up. And they begin to talk about their leader, Abimelech. Man, what a loser. Can't even protect us. Can't even defend us we got all this problem going on with people being robbed. And a guy named Gael. Gael says, as he is drinking a little bit too much and getting a little too brave because his tongue's getting too, a little too loose, he goes, the guy's a loser. You know what? His father's not even from here. Man, I could kick his butt. Can I say that? I could take him, man. Now... Zabul, he's the governor of the city. He is the one that's been left by Abimelech to oversee the city. So Zabul sends a note to Abimelech and says to him, they're talking about you, man. They're trash talking you. You better do something. You better act. Why don't you get your guys come and get ready and charge the city? So Abimelech gets his guys together, and he divides them into four groups. He has a strategy of how he's going to attack the city. The next morning, Zebul walks out with Gael out to the gate. They're out to the gate, and they're kind of looking out in the early morning. And Gael says, I see men. Looks like they're coming down from the mountain toward the city. And Zebel is trying to buy Abimelech time. He's trying to be able to delay as long as he can so Gael doesn't rally the guys together to go out and charge. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's just a shadow. And Gael says, no, no, those are men. Then Zabel looks at him and goes, you were, ch- you were trash talking him? You were making fun of his father? Well, let's go see how tough you are now. Go ahead, get your guys, go out there and fight them. And we're told that Abimelech's group is able to rally against strongly against the people of Shechem and drives them back into the city. But Abimelech doesn't go anywhere. He waits. 
He waits outside the city and we're told the next day that they rally the troops in Shechem and go out once again. Now this time, Abimelech is able to charge into the city. Let me show you a map. To the best of our understanding, those who are smart and know these kind of things, this is what Shechem looks like today. And this is what down here on the right is an artist's rendition from a great website that Mark showed me of what the cities would be or look like when they're reconstructed. And so what you see up here is you see the, the temple of Baal. You see the gate into the city. You see also the tower that a lot of cities built a particular area, a stronghold, that if the city gets conquered, you would get your people in the stronghold and you would go to the top. And Abimelech is able to drive the people through the gates and into the strong place. He's defeating them all along, but it says a thousand men, women, and children have gone into the stronghold. So he goes up on the hill and he starts cutting down branches and he turns to his guys and say, do what you see me doing. And he takes the branches and he puts them all around the bottom of the stronghold and he sets it on fire and he burns down the stronghold and he kills these people. Remember the prophecy? Fire will come out and destroy you. Then he heard about another town that is about 15 kilometers away that they are rebelling against him. And so he goes and he has the same plan of action. He charges into the city. He drives them into their fortress, into their little place where they can go. And he begins to put fire or begins to put branches down around that. And it says an older woman comes with a millstone. You know what a millstone is, right? Two pieces Taking, uh, taking grain and grounding it. He takes the top part and she leans over the top and she drops it and it lands on his head. Well, he looks at his guys and it's a little embarrassing that an older woman with a millstone is going to take this guy out. So he turns and says to the, his armor bearer, to one of the young guys running with him, he says, please run me through, kill me. I don't want it to be told that a woman has killed me. Though, if you know the story, when he's mentioned again later, it says, and a woman killed him. (laughs) Now, this, to me, is a fascinating story. But the question really is, why does God allow this story to be included? Because he wants to remind us that in the midst of God creating a kingdom, an evil kingdom is being built. Where God builds a church, the evil one builds a chapel right next door. Why is this story included? It's to remind us there is a bigger story that we're engaged in. There's a meta story of God who creates the world and desires to have relationship with us. And the evil one comes and begins to draw people away from the God who's created them. The God who wants to love them and protect them and give to them. And this evil one is real. You and I tend sometimes when we hear the word Satan mentioned we kind of roll our eyes especially right now in america maybe the country you're from as well we kind of roll our eyes at satan and frankly that is exactly what he would love us to do see there's two extremes to his strategy and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment one extreme is that we would take and make very light of him And frankly, then he can do whatever he wants because we don't see, we're not looking for him. And the other extreme is that we see him under every rock. We give him way too much authority. He's a roaring lion, and we give him way too much authority. It's one of these two extremes. And let me ask you for a moment, which camp do you tend to be in? The reality of an evil king and an evil kingdom, for us as followers of Christ, 
is real and it's clear. We believe in a spiritual realm. We believe that there are two powers that are at work. We believe that there is this evilness that has an agenda, and the agenda is to destroy us. Now, a couple things to remember before we look clearly at his strategy. Satan is not God. He's not God. What do I mean by that? One, he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at one time like God is. He is limited to space. Omnipresent means everywhere, all at once. He is limited to to time and to space. He is not God. He's not omniscient, meaning he does not know all things. He cannot read your minds. He's an expert on humanity. He's an expert. He's had years to study. But he cannot read your minds. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He is a created being. And when Jesus came, the king conquered him, for he said, I saw Satan fall from the sky. He is a lion with a roar, but has no teeth. Now, what is the aim of the evil king's attack? Satan does not win when we worship him. He wins when we don't worship Jesus. See, Satan's win is not that I would bow down and be devoted to him. It's when I take my eyes off Christ, he wins. When we stop trusting, the evil king, the evil judge Abimelech was able to gain power with the Israelites because they gave up on God and they turned to Baal. There is the entry point for the evil one. Let me give you three weapons of choice, three weapons of choice in the last minutes that we have together. Here's the first one. Satan's weapon of choice, one of them, is the weapon of deception. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. John 8, 44, we'll put it up here on the screen. Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He deceives us. He has deceived us in the way in which we picture him. Let me show you a picture how most of us think of Satan. This is from the Middle Ages, a bunch of different places that have come together. But this is kind of what, at least in America, on Halloween, uh, when little kids run around in costumes, you get candy, they go door to door to get candy. This is a lot of little kids dress up in this kind of outfit, and we just kind of look at that and go, oh, okay, that's so cute. You know. But you know what? He's smarter than that. In Corinthians, it says... We'll put it up here. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He looks more like this. That looks right to us. There's something about that that seems right to us. We are deceived in even what he looks like. In the world today, Satan is trying to deceive us that he's not real. Satan wants you to believe and accept something that's not true. That's what deception does. He wants you to believe and accept something that's not true. That, that behavior that you have, it's really not that harmful to you. That unhealthy relationship you're in, it's really not that bad for you. Satan wants you to question and disbelieve something that is true. 
You're not really loved by God. God is fed up with your failure. That's what deception does. Here's what is true. That's not really true. Believe this. This isn't true. Oh, no, this really is true. And as followers of Christ, we live in this tension. It is Satan's very character to question God's character and to cause us to question God's character. Let me remind you what it says in Genesis Genesis 2.17, God says, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. God's words, take them to the bank. What does Satan say in Genesis 3.4 through the snake? You're not going to die. What's he saying? God's a liar. Don't believe God. Satan wants you to believe anything or anyone but God. Trust your feelings. Trust the force, Luke. (laughs) Trust your own reasoning. Trust your instincts. Trust what you read online. Trust books and TV shows. Trust anything but God. And we are deceived in believing things that are not true about God and about us. God can't be trusted. God really won't do what he promises. God doesn't really know what I need. What I had before, what I had before me is far better than anything God could ever provide for me. I am far more important than I really realize I am to other people. People need me. I'm not loved by God. I'm not really forgiven by God. I'm not really important to God. And God's not really truly interested in me. These are all lies. Satan wants you to love what is harmful for you and hate what is good for you. Let me say that again. Satan wants you to love what is harmful for you and to hate what is good for you. As he deceives us. Abimelech was deceived into thinking he should be the king. He, he's the one that's going to be the rescuer. He is the one that comes from Shechem. He is one of the guys. He was deceived and he sought to deceive the leaders of Shechem into thinking they can trust him. Remember what John 10.10 says, the thief, the evil king, we'll put it up here, comes only to steal and kill and destroy me, us. But Jesus, the good king, came that I might have life and have it abundantly. This is a Jackson Crumb translation. But folks, as followers of Christ, there's hope for us. We have a better king. A king who is committed to the truth about himself and about us. A king who will look us in the eye and say, you are broken and damaged in great need. And I can meet that need. For he says in John 8 and John 14, Jesus answers, said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It is the truth of God revealed in Christ that we find our hope. Second type of weapon is temptation. If the exception is wanting us to believe something about God that's not true, then temptation is putting deception into practice. We are deceived in thinking that this thing is good for us, and the temptation is that I'm going to believe it and I'm going to act on it. I'm not willing to wait any longer for what God is going to provide for me. I'm going to marry whoever I choose instead of waiting for the one that is the best for me as God has designed it for me. What's wrong with what I want? 
Who will know about this? Because I won't tell anybody. This is my own little prayer. This is in my own little private world. And who am I really hurting by the things that I'm doing in private? I have a right to be angry and not to forgive. You know, it's interesting about temptation. It hits us in three broad areas. Let me put it up here on the screen. In 1 John 2.16 For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, which is pleasure, the lust of the eyes, which is possession, and the pride of life, which is position, comes not from the Father, but from the world. We think about the things that appeal to us. I need to have, I must be seen, I must feel a certain way. We are tempted into acting and taking these things for ourselves. We are convinced that if I have these things, my life will be better. It is craving something that we may know to be bad and wrong for us and wanting it anyway. And it's the blame game. Well, it's not my fault. My favorite is when, well, Satan made me do this. Remember when God confronts Adam, Adam, what have you done? Not me, but the woman. Eve, what have you done? Not me, but the snake. It's the blame game. And if I may, I just want to remind us, we do not need the evil one to cause us to sin. We're very good of sinning all on our own. We have a sin nature that stirs in us a desire to live rebellious. Abimelech succumbed to the temptation and to taking control of his own life by killing his brothers. I'm going to take control. I am not going to be threatened. No one's going to be able to come against me. And he kills his 70 brothers. John 10.10, what does it say? The thief, the evil king, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, the good king, came that I might have life and have it abundantly. As followers of Jesus, there is great hope for us in the midst of this battle between good and evil, between these two kings. We have a king who was fully tempted and did not give in. I was reading a John Stott book. He was a British pastor and just... A brilliant man. And he talked about temptation and he said, you and I never fully experience temptation because we give in somewhere along the way. (laughs) He said, but Jesus experienced the full temptation to its very end, not once ever giving in. He knew it fully. We have a king who's been victorious in his temptation. And that same spirit that resides in Christ resides in you and me. The presence of God resides in us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt and we are now able to resist and to live as God has called us to live. The question is, are we willing? The third type of scheme of the evil one is not only does he deceive and does he tempt, but then he accuses The devil means slander or accuser. He stands before us, before God, and he points his finger like in the book of Job and goes, look at him, look at her. He stands and points his finger at us, and we can hear the voice in our head, and you call yourself a Christian. Or he's able to stir the world to accuse us. And have others point their finger at us and go, look at you. You say you're a follower of Christ. Look what you've done. 
Many times we are wrongfully accused, but there's many times we are rightly accused. But you know what accusation does? It brings about guilt and shame. And we'd like Adam and Eve, we go and hide. We have deceived ourselves into believing that God is only interested in those people that are truly good. And we keep saying to ourselves, I'll never be good enough. The evil one constantly questions our thoughts, our behaviors, our motives, and says over and over again, you're not loved, you're not loved, you're not loved, you're not forgiven, you're not received. It's the accusations of the evil one that neutralizes many of us in our spiritual journeys. I've seen this in the years I've been a pastor. When you finally pull it all apart, it's that they just, people feel so condemned by the things they have done. They will keep doing the right things, but really they stand accused and they've not lived in the freedom that comes in knowing Christ. But remember what John 10.10 10 says, the thief, the evil king comes only to steal, kill, and destroy Yeah, but the good king, he came that I might have life and have it abundantly. And there's hope for us. There is hope for you and me. We have a better king, a king who has taken our accusations to the cross, who on the cross takes all this stuff we've been accused of, all this true stuff. He brings it upon himself and he says, it's finished. It's covered. A king died carrying our sin. I mean, when you think about... Christianity, the unique thing for me about Christianity is that the king gets up off his throne and does for his servants what his servants could never do for themselves. That's why you and I are able to say out of Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore there is now, right now, this moment, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Do we believe that? Some of you have made choices. You have been deceived and you have made choices. You have bought in and you have given yourself over to a temptation. And you are standing accused right now. You sit here and you are standing accused. And the shame and the guilt is overwhelming for you. You have a king who says, I know you, I've sought you, I've received you, I've forgiven you, I have seated you at my right hand. These are lies. We confess, we agree with the king that yes, we've offended our God and we once again enjoy the grace of forgiveness. These 12 boys and one 27-year-old coach were in this room within this cave system whispering to each other, do you think anybody knows we're here? Will anybody come looking? Is there any hope for us? Nine days in, a diver pops his head up out of the water takes his flashlight and shines it on these guys. What do you think they felt? We've been found. 
We've been rescued. Now, as you know the story, it took several more days in order to be able to get them all out. It was a really complicated rescue. It was an amazing, complicated rescue. Let me show you another picture. 9,000 volunteers were involved in this thing. 9,000. Various nations. But what do you think it felt like when this guy pops out of the water? The sense of going, yes, they've been looking for us. Some of you stand in darkness. Your king is looking for you. Your king has sought you. Your king has forgiven you. Your king has asked you, come, come. I want to bring you from darkness back to light. Let's bow in prayer. Right now, some of us, what we need to be thinking, what we need to be praying is, God, I have believed the lies. I have allowed myself to buy into the temptation, and I am standing accused, and I feel ashamed. Oh, the guilt is overwhelming for me. And we need to say to ourselves, but the king has rescued us. He has found us. He has sought us. He has received us and forgiven us. It is time for us to give ourselves back to the king. Abimelech was an evil king, driven by the evil one. But it just reminds us as we read the Bible that a good king is coming. For God gets up off his throne and he steps into time and becomes a man named Jesus and the king has come and the king reigns. Father God, I pray for us, for some of us struggling right now and battling with Could we ever be received again because of the stuff we've been done? The temptation and the deceit that we have bought into. The voices of accusation play over and over and over in our head, maybe even from things done years ago. Father, right here, right now, in this moment, may we know your freedom. May we remind ourselves the King has come. The King has sought us. The King has rescued us. We are loved by the King. In Jesus' name we pray.